This program is intended for mature audiences only. Altitude adjustment may contain language, images, or other content that some may find offensive. Your discretion is advised. Welcome to Altitude Adjustment. Good afternoon. It is 2 p.m. Central Time, May the 14th. I'm Leon Davis, joined with uh, Warren as my co-host. And a special guest today is Jessica Wernley. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you for having me. Well, it is truly my pleasure. I ran across your profile, just for the people that are listening. So I ran across your profile on LinkedIn. And I was um, quite impressed. And, I, and, and there were a lot of questions. I had a lot of questions immediately. So I've heard <laughs> the term um, community organizer, um, of course, with Barack Obama, which, which means you might be in line for the presidency, I'm guessing. <laughs> so explain what a community organizer is. Yeah, so I, I trained with the, under the same organization that trained um, President Obama. Um, so you said explain what org community organizer is? Yeah. Uh, so it, there's a lot to it, but it's really about building power. So my my work is really centered in community organizing and building power, especially within black and brown communities. So just making sure that we are um, a part of the decisions that get made that impact our lives. Okay, that's that's a that's, that's, that's a, a short, short answer. Version of yeah, it. that's the Reader's Digest <laughs> version. I got that. Yes. You know, I and and I don't mean no harm with this, but that almost uh, uh, presented more questions than it did answers. <laughs> Community organizing it. There's just so much. I remember when um, when Barack Obama was running for president and. Folks are saying, oh, he's a community organizer, and no one really knew what that meant. And then, you know, the other side was trying to paint that as a completely negative thing. Mm. Um, but it actually, you know, his, his using the tools of organizing and organizing people is really what helped him get into office. But, yeah, it's a very broad thing, but the, the goal is really to build power among black and brown communities. So now how do you, how do, you do that? How do you, how do you help build that power? Yeah, so it really is through bringing people together who have shared interests, right? Who have a shared struggle or who um, agree on the type of change that they want to see in community. So it's about bringing those folks together under a common cause and then holding um, decision makers accountable. So it looks like, you know, I moved here about to the area about 10 years ago to become the director of a social justice organization over on the Illinois side of the river. And so we organized institutions, like we organized faith-based institutions and the people within those. And we, you know, we coalesced together around different issues that impacted those specific people within those communities. So one example is um, we worked with churches in East St. Louis. Um, and one year there was, the city wrote an ordinance that churches had to pay a fee every year. And so we said, well, that sounds, that's a tax, right? Like the government's asking the church to pay a fee, but that's a tax and that's illegal. So we gathered all the, the churches in the area together. We went to city hall and we asked them to, to rescind this ordinance, to, to undo it. So 
you know, it was just about getting folks together to say, okay, this impacts all of us. So let's show up together as opposed to just, you know, one pastor showing up at one city council meeting. We all came together. We had prepared statements. Um, and it took a few times of us coming to the city council meetings and then they finally reversed it. So that's just one example of what that looks like. Okay. Wow. Okay. Go ahead. What, what did they call that fee and how did they justify it? They said it was um, a fee to, to pay for like safety inspections. Um, really, they were looking for ways to to build their budget, right? They're, they were having some deficits. And so they said, okay, how can we just squeeze m more money out of, out of folks? And this is what they came up with. So um, those were things that had been done for years. And that's just something that, you know, the fire department did for free. And we actually met with the fire department to say, mm -hmm. is this something that's gonna benefit you all in any way? And they said, no, we're not gonna see a cent from this. Like this doesn't benefit us, we're, we're not for it. So. And that's what you do in organizing, right? Is you sit down, you have conversations with people to see their perspectives and, and where their interests are. And and so they actually backed us up in that, which was really helpful. Wow. Were you, did you have another one? Well, I, I was talking to Warren. Did, did he have another question? Just curious, what municipality was it, can you say? Yeah, this was in East St. Louis, Illinois. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So when you said you came to St. Louis, you came to St. Louis from? From Chicago area. Ah, oh, yeah. But the Chicago connection, the last, I think the last three guests we've yes, had have been for, from Chicago. So yeah. uh, great things. Uh, great props to Chicago for providing such uh, wonderful talent. Um, <laughs> so, so you said you were invited to uh, head this organization. Um, who invited you and, and how did they learn of you? So when I was in grad school, I actually interned with um, Gamaliel of Metro Chicago. So it's an affiliate of the national organization, the Gamaliel Network. So I interned there and I got the opportunity to go to their national organizing training. And that's when I decided this is for me, like this is what I'm trying to do with my life. I wanna be an organizer. Um, so I kind of fell into, fell into organizing that way. And after I graduated, I said, I need to find, you know, I want to find a role as an organizer and particularly ideally within this organization. So I actually, um, visited some different organizations throughout, you know, throughout the different states. Um, and then when I interviewed with the organization in the Metro East, it was just a really good fit. Um, it just, it felt right for me. It felt right for them. And they were really just eager to, to invite me down after that. Excellent. So, so you've, you've done work for other communities here in the St. Louis area. Uh, one of them being Ferguson and you came down during the, the tumultuous time of the Ferguson, uh, riots and things of that nature. So, uh, tell me a little bit about how that experience was and how you initially got involved. Hmm. So um, it was definitely a, a life-changing experience. Um, I heard about what was going on through the news and some of my friends had been going down there for a few nights. And so um, one of the nights I decided to go down with one of my friends just to see firsthand what was going on. I had heard different stories about things that were happening. So I just said, let me go down and see for myself and just 
see what's going on and how I can get involved. And so I went down there and I was able to witness, um, you know, the tensions that were happening between the police and the protesters and, um, and just to get more of the story of even what happened with Michael Brown and, um, and how people were just expressing their anger. And, and I got to hear what they were asking for, you know, they were really just asking for justice. So, yeah, so I kept showing up and, you know, night after night and just was there as a support. I really wanted to stand behind the people who had been out there since day one, who were really um, lifting up their voices. And um, so I just wanted to make sure that I was there to back that up. And I would go on my Facebook and, and record live just to show people what were happening in real time. And I would make sure that I was spreading the message um, that the folks were sharing who were out there. Okay, so how did you, so my understanding is that you worked with the, the city council or the, the city civic organization in helping in, um, mitigate some of the, the issues that they were having, is that true? You broke up a little bit there, but you're saying that I that I helped with the city council, is that what you're Right, you're help, helping, helping in some way uh, in your professional capacity uh, with so, the, the a lot of me being out there, a lot of it was helping at an informal capacity, mm -hmm. at, at least at first. Um, in the very beginning, a lot of organizations were really kind of wanted to have their hands off or they were they were trying to get a feel for what their role should be. So my organ that was when I was working with UCM at the time and we were over in Illinois and folks were a little bit hesitant to just jump in. So when I went there, I went on my own time um, just as myself. And over time, I started partnering with the Missouri organization, MCU, Metropolitan Congregations United, because they started going out there and, and bringing different pastors out there, different church members out there. And so I, I helped them. I stood alongside them and partnered with them as they tried to figure out what their role was in all of this. So again, there were a lot of like young organizers using their voice for the first time and so we wanted to make sure that we were positioned to back them up, not to come out and step in front of them and start leading. So in the beginning, it was very informal, just showing up, supporting. Um, and then it turned into, I did help to organize a few different protests. Um, I did, um, I was a part of some different coalitions of organizations as folks were starting to get more organized around it. Okay. Now, uh, uh, Black Lives Matter uh, to be around that time, or were they already in existence? So that's a tricky, so, you know, there's Black Lives Matter, the saying, the phrase, and then there's Black Lives Matter, the organization. So Black Lives Matter, the, the national organization, was an, was there before Mike Brown. You know, they, they were there, they were there for years before. Um, but folks started using the saying Black Lives Matter um, more prominently during the Ferguson uprising. So gotcha. folks were, were saying that, that was the hashtag, that was how you could follow what was happening on social media. And so it became confusing. There was a while where it was really confusing between Black Lives Matter, the hashtag and the saying, and then Black Lives Matter, the organization. Right. Um, so now folks use like BLM, that's like short for Black Lives Matter, and just to kind of help distinguish and now there's also another organization that was birthed called 
that's called the Movement for Black Lives. So there's those distinct kind of things there. But um, early on, folks were really hesitant to say Black Lives Matter. You know, now you go on Netflix and they say Black Lives Matter movies and you go on, you know, you know, everyone, all corporate organizations are saying Black Lives Matter now. And it's, it's become more mainstream. But in the beginning, folks were like, oh, you know, there was the All Lives Matter, which folks still say that too. But um, there was just hesitancy around all of it. It was a very controversial thing, which it still is, but we've come so far in these, in these past few years in terms of um, understanding or, or being comfortable with the conversations around race and systemic racism and all of that. Yeah. So, so do you find that we're actually having those conversations about race? In, in a lot of areas we are. I mean, I, I work within the social sector, so I work partner with a lot of nonprofits and they're definitely having conversations internally, externally about race. Um, you know, folks are using the words more than they were before. You know, before it was, don't say the word race, right? <laughs> um, but folks are talking about racial equity and what that looks like. I've been able to partner with different organizations on creating workshops and things for folks to, to talk about racial equity and what their vision for racial equity is. And you know, um, in this past mayoral race, but also in the, in the last one, even four years ago, racial equity became more central to even that race. And then you look at the presidential race nationally, they're talking more about racial equity. So, you know, it starts with talking and then we, we want to make sure it moves to action, but um, it's, there's definitely progress. See, and the reason yeah. I was, the reason I was asking about, are we having the conversation? So recently, since you're in the St. Louis area, um, you've read and heard also about the, um, the school district, um, the, the incident at the school district as they, they talked about um, race, uh, critical race theory, mm. and the, the, the pushback about, you know, uh, teaching race and how to teach race or how not to teach race. So the idea is we don't want to talk about race. You know, we don't want to, we don't want our kids exposed to the idea of racial equity and uh, racial, you know, what, what race has been in America, et cetera, et cetera. So, so for me, I'm thinking, you know, are we really having the conversation? So it appears that we're having the conversation in, in pockets and that we're mm -hmm. not really having the conversation because we could wind up going back to where we were before, which is, you know, we uh, look like we're making progress. We make two steps forward. And then mm -hmm. we take two, you know, one step backwards. So, yes. so when you, yes. so when you, so when I'm asking you, and, and I'm, I'll let you get to the question. I'm sorry, I know I'm a little long-winded here. Uh, so when you say we're having the conversation, do you really feel like we're having the conversation? Well, the fact that we're, I mean, we are having the conversation about do we want to talk about this in school or not, right? right? A few years ago, folks wouldn't, if someone were to say, let's talk about race in school, it would have got shut down immediately, right? And maybe they would have been like that radical person and no one really would have backed them up. But the fact that 
now it's 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 gotten past that point. Like there are people pushing back on it, but it is a conversation. So I feel like there is progress, but you're right. If we don't, if we let up, then we could go, we could take five steps back, right? We could go um, farther backwards, but we are talking about it. We are pushing it. It's never gonna be easy. It's always gonna be met with tension, but folks are continuing to, to move, move it forward. Yeah. And really what, what, where we're at is we're highlighting the tension that was already there, right? So once you start to have, a, have the conversation, then it surfaces lots of things. Where before it was, oh, we're all getting along and things aren't so bad, right? right. Or, and then the folks who said, actually, there's some things that are wrong and they get shut down, right? Mm -hmm. But now those conversations are coming to the surface. And so seeing, oh. seeing pushback isn't necessarily mean that we're moving backwards. That's actually a part of a part of progress. Okay. So, so how do how would a white conservative person see racial equity different from a black progressive? <laughs> how would they see racial Yeah. <laughs> that's that's tough. So I you know a lot of um folks hear the word racial equity and they think racism like they just they see that root word race and then they jump to racism and the reaction is well but i'm not racist though so we don't need to talk about that but we're talking about achieving racial equity and that's that's something different and so we just get caught up on that word race and we get stuck and all these different feelings that we have around it come to the surface and so a lot of times white folks the feelings that come to the surface for them is um, being defensive, right? Like, I, I'm afraid that you're gonna call me racist, so I don't wanna talk about that. <laughs> so, do you think they feel acknowledging uh, the disproportionate equity caused by racism reflects on them and they don't wanna deal with it, or, you know, what's the deal? They can't even talk about it. Yeah, I, I mean, we have we have to have conversations with them, but I know that it, it's all about what we've been taught and what we haven't been taught. Um, so it's there a lot of whatever personal experiences they have, those things bubble up when they hear those words and get defensive. Um, so you're saying, what do they, can you repeat your question one more time? Sorry. So if, if you bring it up, do they get defensive because they feel it's a reflection on them personally somehow, or are they just are ignorant of the facts? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that there's just worry that they're going to be accused that they've done something wrong, but they're also they also haven't had these conversations, so they don't really know what it could lead to. They don't really know what what we're trying to talk about, and folks feel like something's going to get taken away from them. So, you know, even racism, race is a social construct, right? Like race is not an actual scientific thing. It's something that we made up in society in order to divide people. And so we've, white people have been taught that, that they are, that they are right, that their experiences are correct, that they're more superior, even if it's um, a subconscious thing, right? And so when we start to go against that, it just creates this discomfort and we, we clash because we've been taught to clash. 
right? That's why racism even, that's why race even exists is because we're supposed to not get along. And so um, when we try to confront this head on, then it just brings all those surfaces, brings all those tensions to the surface. Okay. So um, it, it sounds like your, your, what you've done so far in the community is, is working with the black community. Um, have you had the opportunity to try to use your skill set in a mixed and more mixed environment? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So my my organizing right now does focus primarily on black and brown communities. But, you know, when I worked at UCM, um, I, I worked throughout the entire Metro East area. So I was working in places like Alton and Godfrey, Illinois, Edwardsville, Illinois, Granite City. So definitely was in white communities as well, Fairview Heights, O'Fallon, you know. Um, and so we actually did have conversations. We brought people together to have conversations about race, even within that context. Um, so I, and even now, so I still work in other communities too, but I am very clear that I prioritize building power within black and brown communities. So your, what, is, what is your idea of power? in the black community. Mm -hmm. So we talk about the def in organizing, we talk about the definition of power and that is the ability to act. So the ability to act and be able to make decisions, be a part of decision-making within your life, right? The, the ability to, um, to change conditions within our community, just the ability to, to create conditions where we can thrive. So um, yeah, the ability to, to have, Control, some control over the life that you want to create. So now in St. Louis, we've, we've got a community that's um, probably close, close to 50-50 as far as um, ethnic or racial makeup. Uh, and the power structure leans heavily to one side. Mm -hmm. how, how do you help help those people who have for so long not been a part of the decision-making understand what being part of the decision-making means and how to use that effectively in their neighborhood for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I partner with different organizations to train residents on how to use the tools of community organizing, um, where we talk about that. We talk about power and how we come together to build it and what it looks like to use it. Um, we talk about policy, how to create systemic changes. So we, it's not just about let's get a quick solution for the problem that we're seeing, but how do we, how do we change policies? How do we change practices? How do we put the right people in office so that all these systems work more equitably, right? So on one hand, I work to do that. And on the other hand, I work with, um, with leaders and decision makers who, who do want to listen to community and who do want to center community voice. So I, I try to be a bridge to both sides, right? Like helping people who, who don't know how to use their voice, helping them to elevate and use their voice, and then helping decision makers to listen and center those voices as well. So do you find that, um, that corporations and other entities not of color are really understanding the dynamic that 
that people of color have to deal with. So, so in other words, I as a comp, I as a corporation or as a company, I am in the business of making money. And if there's no money in the black neighborhood, what is my incentive to to go into the black neighborhood and offer my services and wares? Because it's it's going to financially cost me to to be inclusive. So how do you get a company to see that that we have had a problem, a systemic problem for so long that it's going to take a vision of moving forward in order to help resolve that? Am I making sense? Yes. So I don't necessarily go and ask, you know, I'm not necessarily always in the position where I'm asking companies to come to a community, but one of the campaigns that I worked on um, was to create a community benefits agreement coalition so that because a lot of these companies actually do want to come into our communities, right? They actually do want to come and develop in our communities, but we end up getting displaced or it ends up not benefiting us. So on the other hand, I work with residents to make sure that when companies do come into our communities to do development or bring their business, that we actually benefit from that. So that entails sitting down with um, developers and the businesses and, and reaching an agreement that is mutually beneficial. So we say, hey, we know you want to come into our community, but we need to make sure that we actually benefit from that too. You know, can we be a part, we need to have a certain percentage of local folks helping to build on these infrastructure projects. You know, when the building is in place, um, when the company opens, we need to have certain slots open so that you employ some of us, right? So, you know, that's one thing that's really being seen as we, once communities, you know, we drain all the resources from them and then we say, oh, well, let's save you and let's put in all these other, you know, developments and things. And then they end up, you know, gentrification, all of that, folks get displaced and it doesn't um, become of benefit. So I would, and then I would say if there's a company that wanted to come into a community that didn't center racial equity and didn't want to acknowledge past harm and talk about how they're going to um, benefit the community, then that would be a company that we would say, no, you don't need to be in our community. Right. I, I, it's just, did you have something more? No, I, I'm just, thinking about it. So when corporations uh, express ideas that they want to come into a particular area of the city or uh, economically poor area, do they try to make it seem like they 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 have good intentions and they turn out not to? Or do they just not have a clear vision of what the people really need? Yeah, I think that that's a little bit of both, too. I think there are some companies that want to come into a community and they'd have the best intentions. Um, and and I think there are other companies that that don't have, you know, the bottom line is is money. Right. And so when, you, when we live in a society where it, it is about that, it's about money, then it does become harder. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a little bit of both. Some of them have good intentions, but they don't have that connection to community and they don't know how to how to learn about the community and really how to make those connections. And so that's sometimes where I would like to come in to say, let's build these relationships. Let's do some really meaningful listening 
And then there are others who don't have that intention. And so it's just about being able to being able to pay attention <laughs> and see which which is which. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm guessing that part of your um, re- responsibilities is helping the community understand um, what they should and could expect from um, services that are rendered in their community and companies that come into their communities. So, so how do you go about uh, helping those communities understand, you know, when they, when they've been, when a a community has been starved for so long, Mm -hmm. they don't have, you know, they're accustomed to being passed over for the new shopping malls or they're accustomed to being passed over for excellent uh, cleaning services as far as streets and things, things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Civics or or, um, municipal services, you know, how do you get them prepared for that? How, How do you know, is that a part of what you do? To, to, to prepare them to ask for the things that they want. So like when you haven't walked in a while, you have mm-hmm. to learn to walk. So, so how do you teach them to walk? Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of things. So I'm a vision person. So I like to start with vision. And if you don't, if you're not clear on where you want to end up, then it's harder to make these individual decisions, right? Right. So I like to bring folks together and talk about what do we want our community to look like? What would it look like for us to thrive? Like, let's picture that. Let's get really specific and talk about what that looks like for us individually and collectively. So then it's a little bit easier for us to see, does this fit into our vision or is this not, right? Um, We also, when we train and organizing, we talk about how to craft a demand, right? So how to put together specifically what you want. So a lot of times, you know, even if we go back and look at the Ferguson uprising, at first it didn't seem like there was a clear demand, right? Like folks were just upset. But after a while things got clear, like we want an indictment, right? We want, then it became, we want change in policies. We want certain people to resign. So it gets very specific. So in organizing, we teach people Again, what, what's the systemic cause to this problem that we need to undo? And then how do we create a very specific demand around that? So um, in that, in the, in the, we'll just, I'll use the, the Ferguson situation. There was a lot of emotion early. And um, the call for an indictment uh, was more... They weren't trying to uh, call for the system to work. They were calling for vigilantism, kind of. Um, so, so how do you how do you get to uh, eliminating the emotional aspects of your demands or, or uh, community's demands, and getting down to what they can actually achieve? Am I making, am I, is that? You are, you are making sense. Um, but I would argue that we don't need to remove emotion. I think that we've been taught we're supposed to remove emotion and be serious and to be taken seriously, but we are, we are human beings. Right. And so, so I think we, we talk about 
leaning into what you're feeling like if you're angry let's harness that let's use it let's and let's build on it right so it's not about let's remove our anger let's remove our sadness because our babies are dying and and that's a problem and even if we don't know exactly um the system or the policy that we want changed we can say we want to stop dying right so we start we start there and then we start talking about, okay, let's break down, you know, then we learn about the policies and everything, but I don't think we have to remove our emotion in order to do that. Um, but in terms of teaching people how to get specific, you know, we talk about what's concrete, what's strategic that we can really win right now. Um, because we don't, you know, in building power, we, wanna, we want to win. So we want to choose something that we're able to win so that we can then build momentum and then win the bigger thing and then win the bigger thing. Like some people want to go straight to something that's not doable at the time. And we always want to push, push ourselves, right? But we want to, we want to tackle things that we know we can win so that we can build that momentum. So in the beginning, you know, it's about winning small things. We, we say, how do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. So, um, so that's part of what, what goes into the training that we do. So, and here's, here's, here's where it's where I probably part with that. Some of that. So the emotion, emotion have us tendency to look for results to satisfy our emotional needs for maybe anger or revenge. And it doesn't take into consideration, um, that, that there are looking at something logically and so so let's take um a, a a police killing so there was a young lady who was going to stab another young lady and the police officer f shot and killed the lady with the knife we can get emotional and want to want the officer prosecuted because he killed the lady without understanding that that was his job to stop one he had to he had to do something to stop something else more harmful happening and that was a responsibility um and then people are going to call for his resignation um because they're emotionally angry and so what i'm saying is is that there are times when emotion can be a help but it also can be a hindrance it can cause us to um, expect results um that 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 don't logically need to be imparted you know making sense yeah that makes sense i um i think that when you look at the emotion tells us you know when we get that anger it tells us something something isn't right so even if you look at that one instance and, and it comes out that okay that was handled the way that it should have been you know but the reason that we're angry is because of these years and years of injustices, which causes us to look at every scenario like something was done incorrectly, right? Because right. so much is done incorrectly. So um, I still think that emotion is kind of the foundation. Emotion is our gut telling us something is wrong and we need to do something about it, right? Um, and so it's still something that can fuel us and guide us throughout this work. Sure, I agree. I agree that, that it, it, we are human. And emotion is a part of who we are. And if we eliminate the emotional part, um, that could lead to some pretty negative consequences also. Uh, compassion comes out of emotion. 
So, uh, so I agree with you there. I just there there are times I think that are a lot of uh, the things that we might ask for are emotionally based, and and don't and we don't tend to go back and look at the logic and say, is this reasonable? Is this something that we really should be pursuing? Because sometimes you know we can get emotional about things, and and we can be in the wrong, and and if we if we don't look and you know try to uh, evaluate the the logic and reasonableness of it, then, then we could just be chasing down things because of the emotional attachment to whatever we want to happen. Uh, did you have a question, Warren? No, I just wanted to add that the one situation where we do want to control our emotions would be when we're interacting with the police because they have power of life over death. And if we appear to cross the line or any, you know, it's so easy for them to be justified to take your life. If you make a threat, they fear for their life. So that's one area where we really have to try to hold back on those emotions because of the power that they have. And the object is to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of layers to this because yes, and it's been shown, right, that even when we are most respectful, we're still sure. at risk. Sure. You know, yeah. we talk about how folks used to get lynched in their Sunday best, right? Coming from church, you know, being as respectful as possible. And so, yes, we need to teach our communities how to interact with police in order to try to get a better outcome. Um, and what's more important is we need to be teaching, we need to be changing the system so that we don't have to, um, you know, worry about the loss of life because of how we might be in in one circumstance, right? Because of a situation like that. So, you know, it, it's about balancing it. And I think that, you know, it we would be missing out if we just focused on what we're supposed to do in order to try to stay safe and not look at that bigger picture. Absolutely. At the end of the day, you really need a whole new system when it comes to policing. Now you say a whole new system, and 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 that's where Warren and I um, have conversations. I'll put it that way. So so when he says a whole new system, um, I words matter, but sure. I do I do think that that the that police the police have not served all communities equally. And um, so the, the issue then becomes, do we scrap the whole system and start from scratch? Or is there room for modifications so that the system, um, so that the shock of change, because, because communities respond to change just as individuals respond to change. Agreed? Well, yeah, but when it comes to the system, we also got to look at the origins of the system and, and how they came to be. And then when uh, you have certain people with certain mentalities that want to be in law enforcement, that becomes a problem because they're kind of twisted in their mindset to begin with. And so how do you deal with that if the system was set up for those type of people? I mean, some serious change has to be brought, brought into play they talk about training over and over and over, mm -hmm. but then at the end of the day, well, that was in his training. Well, apparently the training's bad. 
So like the uh, knee on the neck, for example, uh, that was allowed in a lot of circumstances. So but I'm guessing it often doesn't go too far. I'm guessing, Jessica, that you've had to deal with the training issue, with policing issue. Um, give us your professional experience with this conversation, with that topic. So, well, you know, folks are calling for um, defunding the police. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it goes back to vision. And what, is, what, do, what does it look like to be safe? And what do we need in place in order for us all to be safe and thriving, right? And how do we create that? And a lot of times when we look at that vision, we don't picture police everywhere, right? Ideally, we wouldn't need to have police everywhere. We wouldn't need to have individuals carrying guns patrolling our streets, right? So how do we create that? And so when folks are saying defund the police, they're saying defund, take money from that to build this other thing. And so that's, that's where my opinion is, is that we, we have made the police, we need to make them less relevant, right? We have put them in a position where we think that they're supposed to respond to and answer all these problems. And they're, they were never designed to respond to or answer all these problems. And if we really take a look at our criminal justice system and just ask ourselves, why do we even, where, do, why do we do this, right? Like, why is it that if someone does this, that they end up in a, you know, literally in a cage and then they lose their job and then they're like, does that really create safety? It's not creating safety, right? Like we know the numbers show that someone who, who um, is incarcerated is more likely to be incarcerated again. Mm -hmm. So that means that being incarcerated did not stop that pattern of behavior. So we, we need to look at new solutions. So yeah. uh, we, have a, uh, I'm a, we have a guest on who has asked the question. It's a white guy. Um, one of his questions is, is this live, by the way? Yes, it is live. Uh, and then he talked about, um, uh, he talked about critical race theory, or he, he mentioned critical race theory. And um, in his question, he also included typical stereotypes of black people as violent or uh, carrying weapons and that kind of stuff. And so I don't, I don't really want to get into that aspect of it. Uh, and, and, and you obviously have missed the first part of the conversation because we talked about critical race theory uh, and, and the situation that happened here in St. Louis dealing around critical race theory. Um, and we, that's a conversation that's going to be ongoing. Um, so I do appreciate you uh, asking the question uh, and joining the conversation and, and most certainly be feel free to continue to uh, post uh, because we want you to be inclusive, included in the conversation. This is, that's why it's live. That's why we ask, you know, we ask questions is so that you can participate in it. Um, One of the things that I, I wanted to get to was, for sure, uh, we had talked about prior to going on, on live about the experiences of what is happening on the ground and what is reported in the n national news media. Mm -hmm. um, if you could, you know, refresh that so that, so that, you know, we can bring into the conversation you know, what you, was your experience with um, uh, the, the on the ground versus, you know, in the, in, in the press? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I learned very quickly is, was that what was on the news was portrayed very differently than what was actually happening. Um, you know, I actually brought my mom, my mom came to town <clears throat> to protest with me um, for Blackout Black Friday. And she got to see this firsthand because we went to a mall and, you know, the mall shuts down just from you walking in really. Um, and so we were there and we, we just did a demonstration where we just lied on the floor for four and a half minutes, which is symbolic for the four and a half hours that Michael Brown laid on the street. Um, so we came in, we laid on the ground, we chanted and we walked out, right? Um, in the news, they were talking about folks throwing chairs and this violent, you know, protest. And it's, it was just, she, it's wild. And she, she went home and actually wrote her paper and got, had a little go, a little op-ed back home about her experience. Cause she was like, it's, it's not what you see on the news. It's just not. Um, so that was something I learned really quickly. And I, I talked before the show started about how, you know, after a while protesters would not allow reporters into a certain space because they knew you're going to misrepresent what we're doing and so you stay over there like we're not going to give you an interview they would advise people don't don't take an interview with them don't talk to the reporters because it's not going to be um it's it will not be portrayed accurately and and the, and the difficulty i have with that is that um so the beauty of the, the internet the growth of the internet is is that we don't have to depend on the major organ news organizations to tell people's stories, but they still are the the big focus for most people. And I, I I don't know if at this particular point we should eliminate them from the conversation, but try to find ways to tell our stories in ways that they, and then hold them responsible for making sure that those stories are being told properly. Mm -hmm. I think like what you said, we are in a place where we can create our own own news. So yes, I think holding, working to hold them accountable is huge. And there are some organizations dedicated to doing just that. Um, and also creating our own so that at least, you know, if they see that we're getting more um, attention, then maybe that's that healthy competition that they'll, you know, now they'll know to do things differently. But I know during Ferguson, especially for a lot of the younger folks, they looked to Twitter and Facebook to get their information. You would get live streams from people who were literally there describing what they're watching, um, you know, because also the reporters would typically leave, you know, during, during the height of the Ferguson uprising, there was this pattern where protesters would go out there and then around 10 or 11 at night, the reporters would typically leave. And then that's when things really escalated. And so um, they weren't there a lot of times for the really you know, heated parts um, because usually when the cameras are gone, then okay, everything just kind of just you know, happened. And so folks would be out there with their live streams recording what was happening and you'd be able to see what happened you know, when, when the news cameras left. Um, so definitely, um, definitely making our own news like that's a really big piece of it and i tell people who want to who want accurate information about what's going on to try to find out who the local organizers are and and find them on social media and get connected that way to get just so that you can compare the information that you're getting 
Yeah, I, I like that idea of comparing it and using both sources. Um, because the concern is, um, as, as smaller organizations grow, they, they may take liberties with information in an attempt to grow. And we want to try to, to ensure that, uh, that all of the information that we're getting is, is as close to as accurate as possible and that liberties aren't being taken with that. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, we have to hold those organizations that have a great reach. So like, um, people that visited, uh, Ferguson aren't necessarily going to be in uh, Georgia, aren't necessarily going to be in um, Spokane. So, so being able to have some consistency in uh, applying standards across uh, different social networks, so different people showing things or, or talking about things you know they're not applying the same standard you, we're going to get inconsistent information and and i like the idea that we have an opportunity to build something better if we see that that the major organizations are not intent upon making sure that that they hold themselves accountable and that we as the community aren't going to hold them accountable so so i'd, I'd like to see that that happen so uh, mm -hmm. Community community organizer. <laughs> maybe maybe put that in your hopper of things to to uh, <laughs> to get done for the community. Maybe maybe that's a good thing. Anything, right. Warren? No, no, no. Okay. All right. So no. so how has your experience here in St. Louis um, been? So so this is not an attempt to uh, pick at the warts of St. Louis, because we know there's a few there. But it's an opportunity to, because uh, I know you're, you're politically active here also. So how, how has that gone? Let me, let me ask that way. So I'll ease into this. Um, well, politically active through my organizing and, and oh, you know, okay. support, supporting different candidates too, I suppose. Um, so St. Louis is a really, really interesting place. I know when I first moved here, um, my thoughts were, well, probably eventually move, you know, to DC or California or you know, back to Chicago. I wasn't planning on staying long-term, um, but I definitely fell in love with St. Louis. I think it's just, it has, you know, the amenities of a larger city, but it also acts more like a smaller town where people know each other. And now that I've been here for almost 10 years, I feel, you know, I go places, I see people I know, and it feel, it feels like home. So I, I love St. Louis and in terms of the warts, I believe that it's the perfect place to do the type of work that I do. Like if you want to work towards racial equity, St. Louis is a very unique place to do that for a lot of reasons. And I think some of those reasons are why, you know, the Ferguson uprising ignited this national movement, right? Things have been bubbling, but when it when it happened in St. Louis, um, we it just blew up, right? And and it started trickling throughout the entire country. So I feel like the, when we do the work here, 
when we build that power here, when we create racial equity here, then we can affect the rest of the country. You know, just how St. Louis and, and Missouri is situated, you know, historically, geographically, like it just lends itself to um, being being a groundbreaking place for this type of work. So, excellent. So, so our our guest um, is is. Uh, an interesting person. He started out uh, um, asking some really good questions, and kind of it's kind of devolved a little bit in more in the more accusatory tone. But but let me say to you that uh, the pursuit of power is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, the pursuit of power in some communities is just to find parity, to find equity, to uh, be a part of the national conversation, and. You know, whether you always agree or disagree with a party's attempts to uh, find parity, uh, it, it, it comes from a good place. And we, we, not everyone sees every effort as a positive thing. Um, and, and as we, we mentioned earlier and Jessica mentioned, pushback is a part of change. Uh, if there's no pushback, then there's no change. Nothing has changed. So, so the, the pushback that, that you're experiencing, the pushback that we're experiencing is growing pains. Growth requires some pain, unfortunately. Uh, but, but that's a part of it. That's how you know um, that change is happening, is that there is that pain. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. Or, uh, so I, I mentioned earlier that you're going to be able to tell people about how to connect with you and things that you've got coming up. Uh, we'll do that real quick, and then um, we'll just give a, a few last parting words, and we'll call it a day. Okay, great. So, yeah, folks who want to connect with me, um, I believe the website is in the show notes. Um, it's jessicawernleyllc.com. Um, also, social media on Instagram is underscore, she had the audacity underscore, and LinkedIn, Jessica Wernley. So, I wanted to share a little bit about my She Had the Audacity workshop that I have coming up. So in doing this work over the past decade, I've seen um, folks give their all to this work and even sometimes to the detriment of themselves, in particular, black and brown women, right? Like we carry the heavy load of this work and these spaces that I show up in, the protests, whether it's training, whether it's meetings, um, those spaces are filled with women. And so um, I created the She Had the Audacity workshop for black and brown women to really focus on and center their own freedom and their own vision for their lives. So while we're pursuing freedom for others, we also need to be really focusing on and prioritizing our own. And so that workshop um, kicks off on June 9th and all that information is on my website as well. So one of the things that I wanted to mention earlier, which I didn't, but I'm glad you, you uh, mentioned your workshop is you do a podcast uh, that covers these these kinds of issues. Tell me a, a little bit about your podcast, how you got it. I guess I can almost guess how you got it started, but go ahead and share that. And, and Yeah, tell us. so I started the podcast for the same reasons. I just see us, you know, people like me, women like me out there doing this work and in this cycle of burnout. Um, because we're not prioritizing our own needs. 
So I created the podcast. There's a series about burnout. So it just talks about why we get burnt out and how we can stop. And, and it's called beyond self-care. So it's about, it's not, it's about moving beyond, you know, taking a nice bath at the end of the day after we've overworked ourselves. Right. But starting with not overworking ourselves, like that is the real self-care. Um, so that's, that's my podcast. It's called, she had the audacity and it's on, um, it's on wherever you stream your podcasts. Very good. Very good. Anything Warren? No, I just want to say thank you, Jessica, for deciding to stay here and continue to do the work that you do. And I look forward to following you and, uh, hopefully some great things will come of your work. Thank you. I have absolutely no doubt that, uh, that greatness is in her future. Um, it's definitely in her past. She has, uh, so, so let me ask you a question. How, how do you see, how do you rate success? Cause, because, um, it can't be that you have instant, uh, gratification. In other words, you, you go in, you, you, you talking in a meeting, you're helping people, uh, um, set down goals and objectives and th then, then all of a sudden the goals and objectives are achieved because most of them have to be long-term objectives. So mm -hmm. how do you see your success at this point? You know, what- how, how do I measure that? How do you measure that? Yeah, so for me, it's about increased um, decision-making power. So it's about, do we have more folks who, whose voices are being heard, more folks who are engaged in decision-making process. So that could be more people voting, more people showing up to city council meetings, more people showing up to school board meetings, more people who are informed about the policies that are impacting them. I, I see that as more immediate progress that's going to lead us to that longer-term progress. Excellent, excellent. All righty. I'm going to give you the last word and then we're going to call it a day. Jessica. I, I get the last word. You get the last word. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I just appreciate you all having me, um, having me on here and I appreciate the conversations that you all spark. And this is, this is progress as well, right? Being able to have these conversations, learn more from each other's perspective. So I just appreciate the time. Thank you. Sure. I want to thank you very much uh, for coming on and, and, and talking with us. I am going to keep your contact information because I have uh, absolutely no doubt that I will be having you back. I do appreciate uh, you, you being here today. We will be back tomorrow. Tomorrow we are having a um, free-for-all day. Uh, and you're more than welcome to come. We just pick topics that we like to talk about, and then we go for it for uh, 60 minutes. Um, I'm Leon Davis. Have a great day, and we'll be back tomorrow. Altitude Adjustment. And thank you for listening. This podcast is streamed live on YouTube and Twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website, thelionsdenstl.wixsite.com forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts including Stitcher.com, the iTunes Store, and the Google Play Music Store, to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares, and comments. So please like, share, and comment on this and other episodes of Altitude Adjustment. 
because it matters. And as always, look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you.